Drayton is counting us down. Yeah, you're Welcome in. to the Outlaw Radio Show. <laughs> a roughly one-hour unscripted interactive conversational Bible study between a group of brothers transformed by God's grace. My name is Zach Adams. I'm a Christ follower, husband one, father of three. I am incredibly blessed to be the pastor of the greatest church around, Calvary 316, located just outside of Athens, Georgia. If you'd like to learn more about the church that I pastor, check out calvary316.com. Today, as with most days, I'm joined in studio by my brothers, Nicholas Monty and Deal Daddy Derek. How are you guys? What's up? What's up? Husband of one, father of none. We're out here. That you know of, anyway. Uh, Tonight is a special, it's a special 7 p.m. edition of the Outlaw Radio Show. And, uh, and the reason for that is the Braves come on at 8. Nick, it's like a little after 8, right? It's like 8.07? 8.07. Mm. So we, uh, the debate was, do we just cancel tonight or do we just push up the time? And since I made such a big deal about the Outlaw Radio Show during the announcements at church on Sunday, I felt like, <laughs> well, we got to actually have an episode this week. And so, fellas, thanks for being here. Also joined in studio is the man that needs no introduction, the maestro behind the madness, the producer of this dysfunction, my partner in crime, uh, also husband of none, father of none, Mr. Creighton Vaughn. Long-suffering maestro of madness. <laughs> like, every week before we start this, I explain how the countdown's going to go on. Yep. And we like do it every, and every, yep. every time. Every time you blow it. Every time. Kind of on purpose, just to keep you on your toes. Well, definitely today was on purpose. So it's, a again, a 7 p.m. start time. Uh, we will be done, again, a roughly one-hour show. So if you are a Braves fan, like me, like the fellas, uh, we will be done by 8 o'clock. I promise you that. And uh, go Bravos. Uh, that being said, if you're new to the show, let me just very quickly explain how the Outlaw Radio Show works. First, uh, the show is unscripted. I have no idea what we're talking about. Derek, Nick, they have no idea what we're talking about. Uh, you, the audience, you have no idea what we're talking about. The only human being that knows what we're talking about tonight is the producer, Creighton Vaughn. And so kind of makes every episode unique, different, fun. Uh, again, a conversation on a topic none of us have any idea about other than Creighton, which we'll get to in just a moment. Additionally, aside from being unscripted, the show is uh, by design uh, to be interactive. Um, we are live streaming the show on YouTube. Our YouTube channel is outlawradio.live. We are also streaming live on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash the radio outlaw. So if you're listening on the podcast, which is released the day after the episode, come hang out with us Wednesday nights, typically at eight, but tonight it happens to be seven. So the show is interactive below the video, below the feeds. You can, uh, there's a comment section. You can uh, ask a question, uh, Join the conversation by, by leaving a thought, maybe something the Lord impresses on your heart. So, again, a lot of fun. Anything edifying will be added to the show uh, kind of as we develop the conversation. Lastly, the Outlaw Radio Show is designed to be a conversation. Uh, again, I will kind of spearhead the direction of the show after Creighton drops the topic. But both Creighton, Nick, Derek are all invited uh, to share their thoughts, to interject. Um, in fact, we kind of had a conversation Again, this is all kind of a new thing that we're doing, and Nick and Derek sometimes feel as though if I'm on a roll, uh, that they kind of hold back a little of, of, of interjecting, and we had a conversation. I think they'll be more involved uh, tonight. That's kind of the whole idea and the beauty of the show. So with all that being said and a time restriction firmly in place tonight, uh, Creighton, <laughs> what in the world <laughs> are we talking about? 
this evening. Okay, so tonight uh, I want to talk about um, one of my favorite topics. We're going to come at a different angle than I normally do. Um, so if you're a part of the Calvary Chapel movement, like we are, like Calvary 316 is, um, one of our distinctives or our um, things that make us Calvaries is that we believe in the inerrancy of the Bible, right? Um, and inerrancy is kind of one of those Christianese terms like justified or grace and mercy, which we've talked about a bit. Sanctification. Right. Where if you're not... (laughs) Propitiation. Where if you're not like real versed in like Western American Christian culture, you probably have never heard that word before. Christianese. Christianese. You're kind of like, I'm on fire. It's like, oh, you're on fire? Yeah, the church is on fire. Someone call the fire department. That's not what we mean. Right. Or we say, I love the Lord, and people think we have one connotation, we have something completely different. Um, so the first I invited question, Jesus into my heart. Like, like, <laughs> wait, what? You did what? Yes. I am a slave for Christ. Oh, boy. Mm. Yeah. Also, Jesus is my homeboy. But, uh, so <laughs> that might be like the, the least Ooh. controversial um, <laughs> and of also the Christianese. So, so inerrancy is, is the word. It's the baseline of the question. Get to the question. Yes. So where are we going? So the question is, A, what does inerrancy mean? Because I think we should establish that first. Um, and B, why is it important? Why do we believe in inerrancy? Why is it something that we as Calvary Chapel and I think all Christians um, should hold dear? So the inerrancy of the word of God, what is it? Why is it important? I would, I would also assume that, that within that, that train of thought, translations how do we have so many different versions of the bible how does that tie into this as well how do we get there how do we establish inerrancy yes i was going to set those up later on in the episode but but that's that's kind of like just the general direction of what we're talking about well exactly well let's let's get even broader than that for just a moment because like what is the bible um from from a a fundamental standpoint like a fundamental christian viewpoint what is the bible like why is the bible uh, so important Um, Well, we believe that it's by the Bible, that it's by uh, the words written in this book, uh, that we get to know uh, the heart of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that uh, the living word became the written word, um, and that the two are interconnected, so much so that like within biblical phraseology and how things get presented, when Jesus comes back to earth, like he actually has a, a name, he is the word of God. Um, which is why then the Bible is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword and, and is able to, to, to do things that are, that are interesting. The same word that we find in, in the beginning, in Genesis 1, you know, God said, he spoke, let there be light. And God spoke all things into existence out of nothing. And we believe that the Bible has, as the words of God, as the word of God, doesn't just reveal to us the person, the heart of Jesus, the, 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 the personality of God himself, um, but has supernatural power. Again, that, that the, this book is, it's not just a book, that it's a, a, you know, you talk about the Constitution, the Constitution is kind of this living, breathing document. Well, that, that's just stealing verbiage uh, from a Christian standpoint of, of how we view uh, the Bible itself, that, you know, how, how do I grow as a Christian? Well, I get into God's Word, and when I get into God's Word, God's Word gets into me, and it transforms me. Like, it does something 
uh, that transcends like even just the knowledge base that my, my mind, you know, and, and true, you know, you kind of start, you're reading the Bible and you're learning different things about Jesus, about, about, you know, the spiritual world, the spiritual life, God's plans for humanity, God's plans for me, um, the, the reality of sin and death and judgment, but the, but the, the gospel, the good news of grace and what we find in Jesus Christ, it all starts kind of from an intellectual standpoint, but we're also told in Romans that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So at some point, th- something begins to happen within the Bible as we're consuming it. And, you know, as the psalmist says, I- I'm rooting myself by rivers of living water, you know, that the scriptures, you know, the psalmist says, you know, that the Bible is a light into my feet, you know, that it, that it guides my path. Um, as I'm going through God's word, God's word is going through me. And it's not just hitting me in the, the intellectual, in the knowledge center. I'm not just gaining information. But there is a transformation that's happening. Again, we talk about like, you know, you are, like you become a lot like who you hang out with. Like you can always tell a lot about a person by hanging out with their friends, especially long-term friends. It's why as a, as a father, like I'm very protective on who I allow my kids to spend a lot of time with. Like they have certain friends, you know, from their ball team, friends that don't know Jesus, that, that we, we allow, like, for example, Quincy to play on a baseball team, and he has interactions with people that are not believers. Um, but sometimes those attitudes rub off. You know, he spends the night with a friend, and he comes back, and you can tell he's been hanging out with someone that we didn't like because he's emulating that person. And so we want to become Christ-like as Christians. We want to emulate Jesus. So how do we do that? we got to hang out with Jesus. But from a practical standpoint, how do you hang out with Jesus? You hang out in his word. And so something this transforms, Formation happens as I'm in his word. Now, I always pray on Sunday mornings right before we go into, into the scriptures. As we go through your word, may your word go through us. And may it change us. May it make us more into the image and likeness of Jesus. And so from a, from a very large standpoint, like you got to understand, to understand inerrancy, why it's important, etc. You got to understand why the Bible's important. Uh, we believe that the, 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 the Bible is the primary source by which God speaks to man. You know, the, 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 the other side of that coin is prayer is the fundamental spiritual tool mechanism by which we articulate our thoughts and hearts uh, to the Lord. But it's his word is how he relays his will. It's how he speaks. Have you ever been, I'll throw this to you guys. Have you ever been in a Bible study? And in the course of the Bible study, um, God speaks to you. I mean, I mean, it's a moment. Like you get hit with a thought. God says something to you in the stillness of your own spirit, unrelated to the Bible study. But like, because you were in the Bible study and in the moment that, that, that God spoke, have yeah, you, you ever sure. had that experience? And it may be specific to a situation that you're going through oh, or sure. it may not. Like, it's just something that like, oh, wow, it's something that's pressed on your heart or something that just kind of clicks and opens your mind or just a clarity to something that you may be thinking on. Like the, the pressing can be different, but yeah, it could be something exactly what you're going through in that moment or just something that you're like, oh, wow, I realize this now. So, Nick, you kind of gave your life to Jesus that way. Like you were sitting as an usher in the back of the sanctuary. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's times still now that that happens, but I mean... You'll be sitting there and all of a sudden you'll just be like, wow, I was in this moment and it completely changed the way your rest of your life goes. God speaks. Yes. And he speaks in weird ways all the time. Mm -hmm. Like it, like you said, it's not even about the Bible study, but something in that triggered something in your mind that just made you go a different way. So we believe the Bible, that there is a supernatural component 
to the Bible, that it's not just a book and it's not just words, uh, that there's something holy and sanctified and divine and central uh, to the development um, of our faith, the development of our walks with Jesus, the development of sanctification, the transformation of us becoming more like Christ, um, that the Bible sits very much at the center of all of that. It's how we, we interact with God, how God interacts with us. Um, it is a holy text. It's reverent. It's to be respected. Um, it's why, again, you, you brought up kind of being Calvary Chapel. And for those that might be listening to the podcast or even watching on the live stream, <laughs> I hate that you have to even qualify it. Um, but like to say that we're part of Calvary Chapel, there are like two movements within Calvary Chapel. True. Uh, we're more of the Orthodox Calvary Chapel um, from the, 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 you know, the threat of Pastor Chuck and then as it's been handed down to what's known as the Calvary Chapel Association. And, and one of the big dividing points between the Calvary Chapel Association and what kind of spun off as Calvary, Calvary Global Network does center kind of on this idea of the scriptures and the important role that the scriptures uh, play, uh, not just within the corporate communal life of the church, but but within uh, the individual. I, I say the corporate life because, again, you look at the, the blueprint uh, for the church, uh, Acts 2.47. What, what did the church occupy their times? Well, it was the study of the apostles' doctrine. It was it was uh, the, the Bible. The Bible from day one was a central component. And why was the Bible a central component to the life of the church? Um, well, it's because the Bible is a central component to Jesus' ministry. Um, again, Jesus, you know, when you, when you go through, Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy. Um, you know, when he's, when he's in that tit for tat, the temptation situation in the wilderness with Satan, Jesus quoted three times from the book of Deuteronomy. Um, you know, when people in today's more modern, progressive, liberal wings of Christianity are like, the, the Old Testament's archaic, we don't need it, uh, it's a distraction. It's like, well, it wasn't for Jesus. Um, Jesus quotes from every book of the Old Testament at some point or another. Like, like it was important that that was the Bible that Jesus had, um, and thus it's, it's half of the Bible that we have. Um, if it was good enough for Jesus, important to Jesus, if Jesus would go into synagogues, and would expound on, 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 on the kingdom of God, of which we're a part of, the, the kingdom of heaven, by using the Old Testament, then that, that follows suit, that, that that makes sense. So we're Bible geeks because the first century church were Bible geeks, and Jesus was a Bible geek. Again, the word becoming flesh dwelling among us. So if it, if it was important to Jesus and important for the early church, it should be important for us, which is why as a Calvary Chapel, on Sunday mornings, what do we spend our time doing? Um, yeah, we have a wonderful time of worship, which is uh, the opportunity to, to commune with the Lord in spirit. We add communion as part of that that interaction uh, with the Lord. Uh, we want to experience God, which is a good thing, but we also we worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so that's why we spend the lion's share of our time together going through God's Word together, not just uh, a Bible story or taking a nugget from the, the Scriptures, but going through the scriptures, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, expositionally. So from the framework of like the Bible is a big deal to us. And for the reasons why it's a big deal to us, um, explaining why it's central to the way we live our lives and the way that we do church, you know, coming back to inerrancy, because again, that establishes a context by which inerrancy is an important thing. Now, inerrancy, there's, there's a bit of a misconception, I think, with the idea of inerrancy. Inerrancy is, is without flaw, without fault, uh, without error, inerrancy. Now, we would, we would say, and, and I would exp, uh, you know, present the argument that inerrancy is the belief that the scriptures 
the Holy Scriptures in the way that they were originally written were the inspired words of God. That God uh, chose human vessels by which he would use their individual personalities and gifts and, and flavors uh, to articulate his truth, his words through. And that the the way in which they were originally written were completely without error, without fault. They were inerrant. They were perfect. Again, that's why we place such a high priority on them. And when you look at the Bible from a, from a very large standpoint, um, it is it is really kind of a, it's a crazy document. You know, it's 66 books uh, spread over what three different continents, you could, you could argue, uh, Africa and, and Asia and Europe. Um, it spans, its writing spans 1,500 years. Um, if you don't count, uh, like verbal passed down history prior to Moses. Well, even then there's evidence in in which the book of Genesis was compiled through five separate documents. Um, the genealogies were the records of, they were written down, you know, you, you know, like I have a bit of a different standpoint in regards to oral traditions and their reliability is not great, but I don't think a lot of the scripture was passed down through oral tradition. Mm. I think it was written down and passed down through generation. Um, again, the, and that's, that can be another conversation maybe later about the way that the Jews were meticulous and how they uh, documented things, duplicated things, the genealogy, the genealogical records of families. I mean, I mean, there was a high, there was a high regard, like to the point that when the, when the, the scribes were, you know, the, before the Gutenberg press, you know, if you're duplicating Isaiah. You, know, you had to do it by hand. They throw away the sheet too if it was messed up. Yeah, they, they would throw away, thing, sheet, throw away and, the sheet and within. Every time they got to the name of God, they would stop and they would take a bath and then come back. Like, I mean, it was the, like the whole mentality. And I don't want to bore everyone with the details of like how we, how we do certain things. There are great books that have been written on this. Um, but the idea of inerrancy is that the, the original documents, as they were originally written, were, were without error, um, without contradiction, without flaw. Um, we see that thematically within scripture. Again, a brilliant thing that like you can have 1500 years, you know, several dozen authors, 66 books, multiple continents, and you have a continuous narrative without contradiction. Now there are certain times where people brings up, bring up, you know, certain what they would perceive to be contradictions. I got a whole book refuting all of them. You know, it doesn't take much from a scholarly standpoint to dig into it. Now the Bible does make some pretty crazy claims. Uh, Jonah was swallowed by a great fish, not a whale, because a whale can't swallow anyone, but this was a great fish. Again, if it was a fish God created unique to that moment, that's not illogical. Um, The sun stood still. Crazy, crazy claim. You look at historical documents across the continents, like there are accounts in lore of the sun, an, an elongated day, Noah's flood. Again, the Bible makes some crazy, crazy claims, but again, I, I would argue that there are, there's a factuality behind them if, you, if you're honest about it and want to actually study it and get into the particulars. Now, and back to inerrancy. So I, I start by saying inerrancy is that there, the, the, the scriptures, our Bible, you know, this book is, is without error as it was originally written. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, it is the word of God going through individuals. Um, again, we often think that that what that looked like is that you know the apostle Paul, you know, kind of got himself in a Holy Spirit trance, had the scroll in front of him, quill, 
you know, you know pen and quill, you know, pad, boom. And, and he's like in this pseudo trance writing. Like he has no cognitive awareness of what he's writing. That's not what, that's not how it happened. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit speaking, impressing, moving through him. And thus you get the style you know, the Pauline epistles have a unique style, long run on sentences. <laughs> you know, um, Peter has a, has a very unique style to, to his authorship. Luke, who was more of a historian, writing Luke, and then the follow-up account to Theophilus, the book of Acts, uh, very organized in, in, in the way of his presentation. Not a Jew, a Gentile, also unique within, within kind of just the characteristic of, wit, of which he records certain stories. Mark, probably the secondhand account from Peter of the life of Jesus, you know, Peter is like the ADD apostle. Like, like he can't keep his attention. <laughs> thus, immediately this and immediately that. Like, shiny object here, shiny object there. And, like, it reads like the author has ADD and can't focus and keep their attention. Uh, again, different personalities. Jude and James. James was known as Camel Knees. You know, he was the half-brother of Jesus that rejected his brother until the resurrection when Jesus appeared to him, right? Uh, to be a fly on that wall. Uh, Seriously. Hey, bud. Yeah. Uh, here I am. Remember me? Remember me? Right? And so that's why they called him Camel Knees, because he was on his knees before the Lord every day in prayer. Like, I can't wait to be, re- like, to see my brother again. You know, like, mm-hmm. but he was a very serious no-nonsense, which he's mm-hmm. like, you know, don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers, you know? Count in all joy when you face trials of any kind. Again, the personality, the flavor. You go back into the Psalms, you know, the, the heart of David. The, 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 the brilliance of Solomon. Um, again, very interesting in how it all gets compiled and put together. Now, what needs to be said is that inerrancy says, as the scriptures were originally written, they were perfect. Now, here's the problem. The problem is that, I don't know if you're aware, uh, but the Bible was not written in English. <laughs> you know? <laughs> None they of the Old Testament. That, that Hebrew NIV. Yeah, that, 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 <laughs> yeah, the Hebrew nearly inspired version. Yeah, Jesus didn't read King James. Is that what you're saying? Jesus, the man should live by bread alone. <laughs> no, no, they. Uh, in English, so like, okay, so how do we practically get these things? Well, the Hebrew Old Testament again. It's the Hebrew Old Testament. It was all written in Hebrew, uh, which there were developments in the Hebrew language throughout throughout the centuries. Hebrew kind of, it, it even really started as a calligraphy, uh, very similar to uh, the way that, you know, Egyptian script uh, was presented. Why? Well, the Jews did spend 400 years in Egypt. You think that there might have been kind of a blending in the way that the the, the writing style developed, um, but changed over the centuries. So the Old Testament's primarily written all originally in Hebrew, ancient Hebrew. Um, you have a section of the book of Daniel that's written in, in, in Chaldean um, because of Nebuchadnezzar and the fact that Daniel was, uh, you know, when he's given his prophetic visions, he's an advisor of the king. He's not even in Israel. He's in Babylon. So we, we have uh, some of the ancient Chaldean recorded in the book of, uh, book of Daniel. When you get to the New Testament, New Testament is primarily written in Koine Greek, which is probably the, the most brilliant language. Uh, ever conceived to humanity. Um, we have in English one word for love. Uh, there were at least four uh, different Greek words we have translated as love, but that broke down all the like the differing variations. I love my wife and I love ice cream. 
<laughs> there were two different words to describe two different things, two different existences. Koine Greek's a brilliant language. Um, it was uh, the language of the day. Also, Aramaic. Uh, a lot of people, interestingly enough, didn't actually speak Hebrew in the first century. They read it. The scriptures were written in it. Um, Jesus, no doubt, was able to speak Hebrew. But the dialect of, of kind of the common folk was largely Aramaic in that part of the world. Also, Koine Greek, more in the educated class. Um, again, the Bible's not written in Latin. That was not the, the language of Paul. That was not, uh, it, was, it existed, but it wasn't, it wasn't what the New Testament was originally written in. Um, you know, you have certain Aramaic words that exist, Abba, Father being one, Rabboni, you know, for, for Rabbi. There's some unique instances where you have, um, you know, tastes of some other um, uh, dialects. But largely we have Hebrew, little Chaldean, little Aramaic, largely Greek, as it was originally written. Now, the challenge ends up, how do you go from the original languages into the English and that's where we get into translation. And translation is a very particular uh, process. Um, it's a painstaking process because true translation is where you go back and, and you look at the original Greek word and you're going to come up with the, the best English equivalent to it. Um, not all translations operate that way. Now, I, I probably should add, and again, I, well, I want to avoid tangents here, but the Old Testament... Um, ends up getting translated into the Greek. So you had one, one, one Greek Bible. Um, so you had an initial translation from Hebrew into Greek. So now we have one document, it's all in Greek. That ends up getting translated. I believe it's the Septuagint to the Vulgate. Yes. It gets translated now into Latin. So it goes from Hebrew to Greek, Greek, Greek to Latin. Um, and so it's in Latin for good grief a long time. Um, the masses were conducted in Latin. The Bible was not in the original, uh, not in the, the actual uh, languages of the commoner, the, the, the people. But I should add that um, by the time you get to Jesus's, Jesus's day, the canonization of the Old Testament had been completed. Um, there's a little bit of debate into when the canonization of the Old Testament, when I say canonization, it was the like the codifying of this is what the Old Testament is. These are the books that should be included in the Old Testament. And then there's a divine process within that. These were the books that were already accepted. They were, they were the traditionally accepted books. And so there comes a day where just to exclude other content, we're going to say that this is the scriptures. And more than likely that happened, I believe it happened during Ezra's day, and that Ezra was probably uh, the main compiler of the Old Testament canon. I think there's a lot of evidence for that. Whole different topic another day. New Testament canon took place in the 300s, um, I believe it was the Council of Nicaea. Again, the, the motivation behind the canonization of the New Testament uh, was uh, was to protect what was already accepted as the scriptures from um, additional books of heresy, such as the Gnostic Gospels. Uh, the Gospel of Judas. The Gospel of Judas, Gospel of Enoch, I think was a, a, another one. Cert, some of those certain books um, that, again, had no no accepted um they were not accepted. They were very fringe. And so the New Testament gets canonized in the 300s as it is. Now, it wasn't until, like, I believe the, oh man, the 1200s, give or take, that what we have is the Apocrypha ends up getting adopted by the Catholic Church, mainly because by that point, the Bible is being translated from Latin into the actual 
um, dialect of, of the people. It's interesting that when, when, when the Bible lost its primary place in the life of the church and therefore the believer, when the Bible was not front and center, when it wasn't, when it couldn't even be read by the commoner because it wasn't, no one, no one read Latin and it was not translated into common Common tongue. What happened to the world? Well, we entered what's known as the dark ages and the church got really weird, got really weird. Well, we turned off the light, you know, Jesus is the light of the world and no one's able to. So we entered the dark ages and what happens? Well, we, we, we get the reformation um, largely as, as we had the translation. So all the reformers, one of the most radical things that they were doing is that they're, they are all priests that are reading scripture because they can read Latin. And they're, they're seeing that like the scriptures aren't lining up with the, 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 like the practices of the church. And the easiest way to start a revolution is for the, the common people to realize they're being duped. The easiest way to do that is to translate the scriptures so that people can read the Bible for themselves. So now you have... Uh, Hebrew to Greek, Old Testament to Latin, New Testament, Greek to Latin, that way for a long time. But then you get you get the reformers coming around thinking, well, the people need to read the scriptures for themselves because what they're being fed by the Roman Catholic Church is hogwash. And, and this needs to get reformed, but the only way we can get support is for people to see it for themselves, which a novel idea. So they start translating the scriptures um, into the common tongue, into English, into German, um, and to Swedish, you had all kinds of varying translations. And those guys, the early pioneers of that, were, were burned at the stake. Um, the, the Roman Catholic Church uh, did not want that to happen, did not want to see that happen. Right, because it threatened their supremacy. Which then you get into the point where King James you know, commissions you know, a project, let's do this. And so we have the original, like, old King James version of the, of the scriptures, which is not the old King James version most of you think you have. Like, they're like... 16 editions of that because of the way that English has developed. Right, because that would have been written in like old the 11th English, century. Right? Yeah, so like old, 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 old English. Anyway, so here, here you kind of have you have you have the issue. We're, we're having the scriptures again as they were originally written by the authors inerrant, undergoing uh, a lot of a lot of change as it gets translated into different languages. And language is an interesting thing. It's a weird thing, like. Even today, like there are certain words that we have in English that don't have an equivalency in other dialects of other tongues. Um, I, I encountered this quite a bit. Um, anytime you ever speak in a foreign country, I don't speak Spanish, barely speak English good enough. But if you go to Cuba, you know, Cuba speaks Spanish, but they had their own really weird kind of the best way I, I, I've heard it is like their redneck version of Spanish. It's a different type of Spanish. Um, Cuban people can speak it. Uh, Spanish speakers know they're encountering a Cuban purely because of the dialect. So even things that might get translated into like one type of Spanish don't have an equivalency. Like if you're, if you're speaking in English and someone's trying to translate for you, you quickly realize like you got to very, you got to simplify what you're saying, uh, to its baseline so that it translates, uh, to the audience. So you have the scripture you're going from Greek, which is this brilliant Koine Greek, this beautiful, very complex language, and now we're getting into English. And so we'll just focus to that. English translation, as it should be, is, again, Greek word, what is the best English word we can use? But it is a word-for-word 
translation. Sometimes you have couplings of words, uh, so that a coupling in English doesn't make sense, but you can combine them into one English word that does make sense. Uh, the, the, the King James Version of the Bible uh, largely translated that way. That was the way it translated. Um, that's why I, I have an affinity to what is now the New King James. So the New King James um, is just going into the Old King James and modernizing the English. Again, because language evolves. Um, one of the problems I have with, let's say, the, the NIV is the NIV's terrible translation. It's not even translation. A school of thought has come about since like the 70s, which said instead of going from word to word, because again, that's why you're reading like the, the New King James Version, especially the Pauline epistles. You have these very long run-on sentences. You know, ad, you know adjectives and verbs sometimes are, are, are backwards. You know, you, you have a very, it, it reads weird in, in, a, in a modern tongue. Again, I just think it's more accurate. A school of thought came about that said, well, let's, let's take a sentence in the Greek and let's, let's determine what that sentence was trying to articulate. And as a result of that, then we'll come up with like an English equivalency to it. Uh, the problem with that is that that's not translation, that's commentary. You're adding a human element because you're, you're, the translator has to make a determination what the intent of a sentence was and, and not letting the words speak for themselves. A great example of this is how I think the NIV butchers the idea between the flesh and the old man. They just say it's the same thing. And thus mm -hmm. you're reading about the flesh and the old man, but the old man's dead, but I'm, I'm battling with the flesh. How does this work? Because the two things seem contradictory when you get into the original language, Paul's describing two different things. He's using two different words. And yet we add this element. So you get into that and people are like, well, wait a second. That seems to be a problem. There seems to be a mistake. No, there's an inerrancy to the original. There might be problems with translation. Now, and I think, I think we run into that quite a bit. And I think that that doesn't attack inerrancy. That just means that like, this is, it's, it's difficult taking an ancient text into a modern tongue just because of the, how, how language evolves over time. I will also add just how do we get the scriptures? Uh, well, we get the scriptures from the compilation of the earliest manuscripts possible. And, and most of the time, they're not, I say most of the time, they're not complete. Uh, for example, we don't have the original copy of, of the book of Acts written by Luke. We don't have the original copy of Romans written by, by Paul. But what we do have is early fragments, partials, date, that date back very, very early. Again, you could get into the papyrus findings and, and all types the of Dead different sea things. Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls. And, and again, I don't want to, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. Other than to say that, like, it, if you do research into the amount of manuscriptal evidence that validates this as being as it was originally conceived, um, I think you have like eight bits of information that date within 600 years that give any validity to Alexander the Great even being a person. Right. Um, the Odyssey, I think the earliest uh, manuscriptal evidence was within 800 years, and it's very small. There's like 15,000 early manuscripts, partial manuscripts, validating the Bible. Like, like the amount of manuscriptal... If you have a problem with the Bible, you're like, well, how do you trust the Bible? You can't trust anything Shakespeare wrote. You can't, you can't trust anything you get from Greek antiquity. You can't trust anything you get like from Josephus because, again, the way that documents work and the way that we compile them 
and, and search for the validity of them. Now you run into issues like the last chapter of Mark. You have some manuscripts that have it, some that don't. I, I think that ends up going back to the, the compilation of the Septuagint and then how we get to the Vulgate. Again, I think the ESV is a pretty good, pretty good translation. I just think they actually translate from some of the wrong earlier documents, which is why I don't personally use it. But again, I would have no problems with the ESV. Um, you know, people, people, people talk about, okay, the message, <laughs> the message, yeah, the, message the message. Here's the thing, Eugene Peterson, the message. If you, if you say that, that the message is Eugene Peterson's commentary on the Bible, I have no problems with it at all. Cause it's his commentary on the Bible, on the Bible. Yeah. So Eugene Peterson's reading, reading stories. And he's like, well, I'm just going to put this into how I interpret them to be most accurately presented. I disagree with him a ton. I think it's a fun read. As long as you keep it, it's not, it's not a translation. Yeah. Um, in fact, if it's a translation, it's heretical. Um, right. I don't think Eugene Peterson, I don't have a problem with Eugene Peterson or the message. I have a problem with how people have adopted the message as a substitute for the Bible. Yeah. Because it's not a Bible. It's a commentary on the Bible. And one man's commentary and perspective. And sometimes it's very insightful and sometimes it's not. Um. But again, I think the problem is is the branding and the phraseology of it. Um, so inerrancy, we believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. Now, there's quite a process by which we go from the original manuscripts, of which we don't have, to what we all hold in our hand. And can there be certain issues with the way that certain words get translated? Absolutely. Um, that, that doesn't attack inerrancy that just speaks to the complicated nature of translating ancient documents. And the Bible, again, if you, if you have an interest in this, if you just get like one step below the surface, uh, you will find um, a treasure trove of laborious data. People that are into this, like, like you get into you know, the, the, the codexes, and it's like, oh my gosh, my brain hurts. Yeah, this is one of those, uh, one of those areas where it can get as nerdy as you want to get. No. Yes, like and there are solid get... books. There are solid books that do it. Um, I would say, I want to say it's The Case for Christ, or maybe, I, I think Lee Strubble did a book, uh, The Case for the Bible, maybe, um, where he brought up certain questions and, and got into some very baseline um, uh, you know, perspectives. There's been a few easy books. I, again, if I knew what the topic was in advance, <laughs> I might have been able to pull them from the shelf. It would That's take no me, fun. It would yeah. take me a while. Fellas, what, what do you... What do you think? Yeah, I mean, the inerrancy of the Bible itself, it just brings, like, the Bible either is or it isn't. Like, mm -hmm. it's either everything in this book is true or it's not true. It's either God is real or he's not real. Jesus is real or he's not real. I mean, everything's pretty black and white, too. It's either you either are operating in sin and not being born again or you're being born again and then you're operating brand new. I mean, everything is either it is or it isn't. So, I mean, the inerrancy of the Bible and what we believe in is like either this whole book is true or it's just not. And so everything that we do as our actions, they either glorify God or they or they don't. And so it just it either is or it isn't. So it's inerrant or it's just not. Yeah. And, if, and if it's not, then what are we doing? Yeah, exactly. exactly. Nothing. You could do anything at any time, no matter what. And anything that you do is just a societal consequence. And it doesn't matter. That to me, that to me becomes the biggest, like for those that, that don't believe in the inerrancy of scripture, it's like, well, what are you basing any of your beliefs on? Yeah. Yeah. Like if have... this, if this book is not trustworthy, 
Like, if there are parts of it that that's not trustworthy, how do you determine which ones are and aren't? aren't. Yeah, exactly. It either all is or it isn't. Yep. And again, I think we can be honest with certain with certain issues here and there. But like, it is it is you throw the baby out with the bathwater. I, I, a friend that was talking about the, the the story of the woman at the well. I was like, oh, well, that's not actually in the that, that's not in the original. And I'm like. How do you know first? Yeah, bro. Like you got degrees <laughs> on this. Like the guys that translated that book are are a lot more knowledgeable than I am. Like so, I'm going to kind of go on their, you know, scholarly opinions on it than like you reading some stupid Google articles. Like, I, by I, don't, I don't fully remember being there, but <laughs> the, the guys that studied this. But so. it's like, but you you go down a slippery slope. Well, if you can't trust that story, I mean, you'll those. find people yeah. that will question all the stories. Yeah. And then at that point, like, well, then what's the point? Like it either. Okay. You choose to believe in it or you don't. And I think that's a real shaky place to like put your entire eternal security on. Yeah. And, um, it's, I'm, I believe it's Paul and he's talking to, um, Judaizers and he says that there's no resurrection in Christ. Um, I'm terrible at quoting scripture. You know the one I'm talking about? Yeah, oh, I know what you're talking about. Then all of our works are dead or something like that. He's like, yeah. then it's all like in vain. Yeah, it's like, all yeah. There is no resurrection. Like, what are we doing? If, if, There's no blessed assurance. There is no hope of life afterwards. Who is Jesus yeah. at that point? No one. He's no one. We have no he, idea. Yeah. <laughs> we don't if know he if he's was, alive on the other side or not. You know? Right. Because if, he didn't. He didn't. We, we have no evidence, no proof. If his word could lie to us about, you know, whether or not. Nebuchadnezzar spent time as a cow in the woods, then it could lie to us about the virgin birth or the resurrection yeah. or whatever. Nothing matters. Let me, let me throw in, uh, and Nick, I want to get to you in just a second. Let me throw in kind of one additional wrinkle I think is helpful for, for those of you that um, love the Bible, enjoy the Bible, um, and, and, and study the Bible. Um, there's a good rule of bibliology or how we study the Bible. Um, like the, the Bible is really good at letting you know what it's doing when it's doing it. Uh, for example, the Bible is very good at letting you know it is not describing something that is literal because it will use descriptive terminologies like as. Uh, the Bible it will be very clear when it's articulating a, a vision. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, people read through the scriptures and they're like, well, that's crazy. And it's like, well, that's not actually what the text is saying, um, especially when you get into prophecy, the book of Revelation, um, some, some of those areas. Uh, you also get into like the parables. Uh, you got to understand that a parable, the entire point of a parable is to articulate one lesson. People get into trouble when they try to ex extrapolate out like, like meaning to every single thing. That's not the point. It's a story to articulate a lesson. It's simple. Jesus taught in parables to confound the religious people, realizing that he could speak to the commoner. Because like, okay, I, I get what you're saying, the, the real world lesson. You know, so the Bible's really good. And, and you get to like the book of Genesis... The, the, the Genesis narrative, the, the, the creation account, um, I, I take it as literal. I don't, I don't see it as being a book of poetry or like the poetic license of... No, no, I think God created in six days because he said he created in six days and on the seventh he rested. And unless the scriptures tell me otherwise, uh, I'm going to take it literally. And, and that's where um, you know, I might diverge from, from others that when I read the scriptures, I take it literally. I take it for what it says Unless it tells me or indicates that I should be reading into something, or that it's speaking allegorically, or um, or that a little reading is not is not 
what's what's trying to be presented in that that moment. Um, I think that's important, and again, that'll help you avoid uh, certain pitfalls of controversy. Again, if you just let the Bible say what it says, take it at face value, um, and then realize that the Bible's going to say a lot of things that that don't sit well. Um, in our modern society, in our, our progressive culture, it is the truth and the lie therefore hates it. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, it's an absolute truth. It either is true or it's not like true or false tests. They're not fill in the blank unless it's, no, this is true because of this. It's not, well, I think this is true because of this, this, and this, or I think it's false. It's like, no, it's either true or it's false. Or the, you know, the, the, and it's true. This is the supporting, or it's the false. proverbial this, all of the above box. Yeah, yep. doesn't yeah, exactly. Mean, it doesn't. It's doesn't not work. my truth and Creighton's truth and Nick's truth and your truth. It's like no, it's the absolute truth, or it's not. And there's no truth. If what's true for you is true, and what's true for me is true, then there's no truth at all. Then there is no truth. Um, if there is no, if there is no absolute truth, then there is no absolute falsehood and there's no meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, Nick, what are, what are some of your thoughts? Just, well, you stole the thunder when I, I, I was stole like, the thunder. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, He's I, the host. <laughs> I know he is, but I was like, if the Bible's fallible at any, at any point, then we have nowhere to base our beliefs on like anything. So anything at any moment could be false or true. We never know. At that point, if any part of the Bible's false, then what part is true? What part is false? You've already said yeah, that. Absolutely. But one thing that struck me is if the person out there is struggling on that, the 50-50, that's like, you know what? Then I don't want to believe the Bible. You know, then I don't want to do that. I would say put one foot in, trust the Lord, see if he proves you wrong. And I Ooh. would say, and I would say, I think that's a wonderful exhortation. I would add to that. That it really, this is one of those topics that really is a seek and you shall find, knock. Yes. And mm-hmm. it should be, it That's shall, what the door I... shall be opened. Because if, if you have some serious questions from a scholarly standpoint about the inerrancy of scripture and how all these things develop, like, can I trust this book? Um, if, if you, if you are honest in that quest, I promise you um, that there are brilliant scholars um, that have done copious amounts of research that, that that book is the most reliable thing that you could really, of, of any book that you, I mean, it's the most trustworthy and reliable. And if you would actually, if like you said, you're in that 50, 50, uh, seeking, you'll find, like yep. you will find a plethora of answers. And again, if you're watching this or you're listening on the podcast and you're like, well, where do I start? Um, drop us a line and I'll, I'll personally, I'll send you some, uh, you know, some links to several books that have helped me. Um, and, and just, again, uh, knowing what I know, um, I will admit that I, I, I put a foot in, got about up to my knee and thought, yeah, I'm good. Like I already believe this is God's word and I don't, that's, I don't really need to get that's into That's what this. I was yeah. about to say. The more you dive in, the more you trust it. Yeah. And the more you are glad you did cause the Bible tells you the ending and what is going to happen. So I mean, and you know, the more that you get into it, the more God starts changing you. Well, that, yeah. And then you're like, well, wait a second. This <laughs> isn't just a book. Because a, a book, I read Harry Potter and it didn't influence me quite. Not a wizard now. I'm not a wizard. <laughs> <laughs> um, I read Lord of the Rings and I'm not a hobbit. I didn't start growing hair on my feet. 
Um, but man, I started going through this book and my life is starting to change. And that's the greatest evidence for its power. It's its personal impact. Yeah, it's, it's almost like if if you're perfectly happy with who you are and where you're going and how things are, stay away. Yeah, like, that's true. <laughs> you, could, you could have some radical changes that you're not ready for. So I'm kidding. This is satire. It'll no, it's actually for the better. But there's something <laughs> true to that. There yeah. is some truth to that. Well, do we have anything else or do we want to go ahead and, and call it? Tap nah, out. Go Braves, is, right? bro. Go it Braves. is what it is. Creighton, did that, uh, you, you're the one that brought the topic again. Another great topic. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, you hit the nail on the head. The only thing I was going to add toward the end was the um, the pitfall of errancy, but we hit that. Derek hit that. We nailed it. We covered it. We covered it like gravy. Like gravy. Like gravy. Well, I hope you've enjoyed the Outlaw Radio Show. While the show is live streamed every Wednesday night, the audio is released on our podcast the following morning, Thursday morning. Uh, I try to get to it before noon. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't, but it's always on Thursday. Uh, if you have yet to subscribe to the podcast, uh, Apple, Google, Spotify, uh, for quick links, just go to outlawradio.org. Again, outlawradio.org. If you're already a podcast listener, uh, I would like to invite you to join the live show uh, next Wednesday at 8 p.m., unless the Braves are playing at 8, and then it'll be 7. <laughs> uh, you can watch, again, our YouTube channel, outlawradio.live, again, outlawradio.live, or by visiting facebook.com slash Outlaw. Nicholas and Derek, thank you so much for being on the Outlaw Radio Show. Absolutely. Yep. It's a pleasure. Go Braves. Go Woo! Braves. Creighton, I appreciate you uh, handling Always the text and bringing the topic. Always a pleasure. Once again, my name is Zach Adams. I hope you join us. This time next week, again, depending on whether or not the Braves are playing for another episode of the Outlaw Radio Show. I hate you. That's terrible. Good night, folks. <laughs>